Father God, we thank you that you watch over all of us, each and all of us, members of one another, one family together, while we travel for things that are joyous and sometimes things that are hard, while we face things that may be challenging. And so we particularly lift up to you, Sister Evelyn, today and the Perez family, and ask for your ongoing grace as they mourn the passing of their father. And Lord, I also lift up to you my father, my father-in-law, Eris, and ask that your healing touch would be upon him even right now, Lord God, giving him peace in that hospital in the Philippines, giving him strength, giving guidance and grace to the physicians that are caring for him and all of the staff, keeping him well and bringing him home safely, Lord God. And thank you for granting peace to the heart of our family as you do so. Likewise, I ask, and I know my brothers and sisters join me in asking for quick healing for my wife, our sister Hazel. May she be strengthened in rest today and uh, restored to her full vigor. Now, Lord, last but most importantly, we pray that you would open our hearts to your word today. For we know that all life, all health, all peace, all grace, all strength comes from you. And how would we know about you if it were not for your spirit having inspired your word? So we thank you for giving us both your word and your spirit. And we yield to both today that we might learn from you, that you might open our eyes to see, Lord, that which we have not seen. And in seeing, open our mouths to praise you and to declare that you, Jesus Christ, are the one and only God, in whose name we pray. Amen. It was in one of the many small enclaves of London in 1725 that he was born the son of a sailor man. He was born to a shipmaster and was very early put into the trade of sailing to sea. In fact, by age 11, John Newton was already a sailor before he was even a man. And yet, it wasn't too long before John Newton found himself engaged in the slave trade. In that era of the early to mid-18th century, London and England at large was still deeply embroiled in the slave trade as regrettably and shamefully was what would become the United States. And it was a profitable trade for those who were masters of it. Of course, it was unspeakably horrific for those who were subject to it. But John Newton himself ended up becoming a slave. He had, as a young man, some, some problems with leadership on various ships that he served in. He had cause at one point after having tried to abandon a ship that he was serving on, to be stripped down and whipped at the mast. Later on, he was serving on a ship that was involved in the slave trade from Africa to North America and ran afoul of the master of that ship who gave John Newton as a slave to his wife. And so John Newton labored as a slave for a number of years. It was obviously one of the worst eras of his life. Eventually, he was able to gain his freedom and return to being a, a sailor himself. But more importantly, he came to know the Lord, particularly through a devastating storm one night. He was at sea on the ship, and as a sailor, well aware of the risks of a heavy storm when one is on the high seas. And realizing that his life was at stake, John Newton turned to the Word, to the Bible, to the Scriptures. He was not a believing man before 
But in a moment of desperation, in the dark of night, he looked to the word and he looked to the Lord. And as he did so, he found amazing grace. Amazing grace that saved a sinner like him. Someone who was lost and literally at sea. Someone who was so enlightened by the light of the word that is the light of the world who is Jesus Christ that he came to write, I once was blind, but now I see. And as John Newton became a fervent disciple of Jesus Christ, he became a fervent evangelist of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he is probably best known to you and to me for having written that hymn that came to be known as Amazing Grace. I want to talk about the amazing grace of God to you and I today. But I want to remind you that very often we're not ready to see that amazing grace until we're ready to recognize what a storm we are really in. It is necessary if we are to yield to the light of the Lord to recognize that without that light, we are blind. And so it is that we come to a moment in the ministry of Jesus Christ when he healed a man who was born blind and revealed amazing grace to a beggar who had never seen before, who not only saw the light of day, but came to see the light of the Lord. And in that became also a disciple of Jesus Christ. Today is part four of our 501s. 501s, the genes. The genes that are good for work and good for worship. Sure, anybody in jeans today? You're well-dressed for it. And good for all occasions. When I was a kid, there was a show, uh, Captain Kangaroo, and on that show there was a character named Mr. Green Jeans. So I'm Mr. Green Jeans today. And uh, if that reference makes sense to you, then you're at least as old as I am, I guess. These 501s is not really about genes. It's a series about five places in the scripture, as you remember, where there is one thing that helps fix our focus on Christ. But these are a back-to-basic kind of series. They are taking us back to the place where as we look at each of these one things, we recognize tried and true statements that suggest very real and workable application points in our lives and in our personal faith. So let's make a quick review of the three that we've gone through together to this point. The 501s of Scripture that you can wear anywhere and everywhere and they will fit you and shape your life for the work of the Lord. The first is, one thing I ask. One thing I ask, says David the psalmist in Psalm 27, and that will I seek. And what it is, is really the presence of the Lord. To know and love God. To dwell in His temple. That is, to live in the place where He is honored. And to worship Him daily, every moment. An act of worship for the Lord. That's the way I I want to live. That's one thing I ask, to know and love God. Now, if we are disciples with that devotion at the cornerstone of our lives, is there anything that we lack? Well, one young man came to Jesus essentially asking that question. I've done everything, he says to Jesus in Mark chapter 10. 
that the scriptures require. And I've done it from my earliest youth. And Jesus said to him, there is one thing you lack. Go and sell all you have, give it to the poor, and come follow me. It may be possible that you and I are lacking one thing. And it could be that the one thing that we lack is a lack. In other words, the one thing we need is to recognize our need. Like John Newton in the storm, we need to realize just how treacherous our future is without Christ. Jesus says, don't rely on any treasure on earth, but store up treasure in heaven. So give away what you have to those in need and rely entirely upon me. The one thing that we lack is to give away the things that we treasure so that we can invest in the one who is our only treasure, the treasure of heaven, Jesus himself. In doing that, there is still one thing that we need. Because like Paul said, I can give away all that I have, but if I have not love, it doesn't mean much. It doesn't mean anything. So there is still one thing I need, and that is Jesus. To focus on Jesus first. We looked at the story in Luke chapter 10 of two sisters, Martha and Mary. Mary sitting at the feet of Jesus, soaking up every word that issued forth from his mouth, eagerly desiring his teaching, eagerly attending to him. While Martha went about doing the very honorable and reasonable work of preparing and attending to all these guests in her home. But when she came to Jesus and said, don't you mind that my sister is just sitting here not helping me at all and I'm doing all this work? He said, Martha, Martha, you're distressed and stirred up and worried about so many things, but there's only one thing that you need. And Mary has found it and it won't be taken away from her. The one thing we need is to focus on Jesus first. Jesus himself taught, seek first the kingdom of God and everything else will be added to you. And as it's added to you, don't hold on to it. Let go of your treasure so that you can continue to hold on to Christ. In doing so, you will know Him and love Him because your love will come from Him. So you see, each of these one things is a variation on a theme. And today, when we come to one thing I know in John chapter 9, it is again about Jesus. Let's look at the one thing I know. I'm going to ask, as I bring this scripture to the screen, if you would rise and read it with me. John chapter 9, verse 25. We're going to read together. Let's stand and read the verse that's on the screen here. Together, aloud and loudly. Ready? Whether he is a sinner or not, I do not know. One thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. Thank you, you may be seated. As you're being seated, God bless you, whoever that was, and bless you all. Turn to the person next to you and say, I was blind, but now I see. Today's message is primarily for people who recognize that truth already in their lives. In other words, primarily for believers. But I want to say, if you're a guest with us this morning, or if you're viewing online, and you're not someone who's dedicated your life to Jesus Christ, I assure you today's message is for you as well. But it is one that comes with this caveat. It will be necessary to acknowledge that you're blind without God. And that may be a difficult or hard thing to do, but it's impossible to come to the Lord 
and resist him at the same time. The Lord is very persistent though and I thank God for that. Some of us resisted him for a long time and he persisted in seeking us out like the lost sheep. But sooner or later, there has to be an acknowledgement. And that acknowledgement is, there's nothing on my own that I can do to save myself. There's no way that I can make my life what it is meant to be, nor can I in any way fulfill my total purpose as a human being, unless I give myself over to God. What a thing it is to say that Jesus is Lord of our life. Let's never become casual in saying that. Constant, yes, but never casual. Because, believe me, if Jesus is Lord of your life, it means he is master of all you do, say, and think. And when we begin to think in those terms and acknowledge that reality, it can be a little frightening. Because what we will begin to see is those places of darkness within us, those places of resistance within us, those places where we may say that Jesus is in charge, but we are calling the shots. And one thing I know is this, if we don't give that to God, then we are not giving all of ourselves to the Lord. And the Lord is asking for all of us. Now, what is the context of this statement? This man who says, I don't know whether he's a sinner or not. Who is he talking about? He's talking about Jesus. How can he not know whether Jesus is a sinner or not? Well, there's quite a public debate raging. But the one thing that he does know is, I was blind and now I see. If you read in John chapter 9, and I've preached on this this episode in the life of Jesus at greater length in the past. I'm not going to go into tremendous detail about it. I'm just going to give you a sort of summary of what happened. Jesus comes to a man who is a beggar. His only means of income is to sit by the side of the road and to beg for alms, for gifts to the poor. He's dependent upon the help of others because he was born blind. In fact, the nature of his healing when Jesus spits into the ground and produces mud and packs mud into the, into the sockets of the man's skull, seems to indicate to many commentators that this is a man who may have been born without eyes or whose eyes were not fully formed or developed. And that Jesus, in taking this clay and packing it into the head of the man, is replicating, in a sense, the creative act of God from the very beginning, forming human beings out of the clay of the earth. He does this and prays over the man and then sends the man to a pool, which is called Siloam, which means sent. He sends the man to be sent. It's a key cornerstone of the whole experience because the man's not just going to be healed, he's going to be sent. Sent as a witness. A witness who says, I have been changed. I have been healed. I can't tell you that I'm a great expert in theological things, this man would say. I was a beggar my whole life. I can't tell you how it is that God becomes a human being and as a Messiah heals me. But what I can tell you is this. I was blind and now I see. And he's the one who did it. And I know him because I've seen him. Now, this man, when he goes to the pool, 
he goes on his own. Jesus has gone off. So the man is healed and Jesus isn't there. But the man goes around showing everyone I'm healed and they can immediately see that he is healed. And, it, and again, we think that this is what they call a creative miracle where these missing eyes have actually been created in his head through the packing of the mud and the washing of the water of the pool that's called scent. Because when he comes back, some people are saying, we know him, he's been here every day. He's always on that corner. That's the man born blind. But other people are saying, well, it looks like him, but it can't be him. Why not? Well, because that man didn't have any eyes. And if you've ever seen anybody who actually doesn't have eyeballs in their sockets, you recognize that it changes the whole shape of the face. It's kind of like somebody without teeth. You know, it changes the lower shape of the face. And so when somebody suddenly has eyes present where they didn't before, that's a dramatic change. And of course, in those days, there was nobody wearing sunglasses. So it was apparent that the man had been changed dramatically. In fact, impossibly, quote unquote. But what is impossible for human beings is possible for God. And all things are possible for the one who believes. So a debate starts to stir up and the religious leaders, the Pharisees and so forth, come and say, what's going on here? They're particularly concerned because this miracle occurred on the Sabbath. It occurs on the Saturday, the Jewish holy day. And according to the religious officials, no work is to be done that day. This was a constant recurring issue between Jesus and the religious leaders. Jesus saying, God does his works of goodness on any day. Jesus saying at one point to them, which of you, if your ox falls into the ditch, doesn't get it out on the Sabbath, right? Is it right to do healing works on God's day or is it wrong, Jesus asks. And the answer is clear. God does good on any day and every day. Man was not made for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for man, says Jesus, and woman, by the way. And so the Sabbath is meant to be a day of rest and blessing. And what greater blessing could there be for one who is born blind than to finally see but the religious leaders are grilling all those that were present. What did you see? Who did it? They even bring in the parents of the blind beggar because they're not convinced that this man who has eyes could possibly be the poor eyeless soul who was begging every day. And so they interview the parents. But the parents are well aware that if they say anything that indicates Jesus has done this, if they give any endorsement of it as an act of Jesus, they are at risk of being excommunicated sent out of the synagogue. And so, out of fear, they say, it is our son, and he was born blind. But how he came to see, we cannot say. You'll have to ask him. Thanks, mom and dad. I don't know if that was the first time they threw him under the bus, because it seems if his parents were still around, it's an awful shame that he has to beg. In fact, when Jesus first sees the man, Jesus' disciples ask the question, why was he born blind? Was it because of his sin or his parents? You get a taste of what the parents may have done. Parents, when the child was born blind, feel that this is a curse from God, as the culture of the time taught. Not according to the word, not according to the Lord, but according to the opinions of people who wander around in their own blindness, don't we? And so these parents, perhaps, wanted to make it clear, it's not our sin, it must be his. Put him out of the house. Let him survive by begging. Perhaps. In any case, they don't seem to go to any great effort to stand up for him now. And so this man, a blind beggar, 
stands before the mighty court of the Jewish officials and all of the public opinion and they say to him who did this and he says it's the man Jesus of Nazareth how did he do it and he explains he spit in the dirt made mud in my eye sent me to the pool I washed and I could see not possible they say the man's a sinner this Jesus is a sinner he's doing he's doing work on the Sabbath that breaks the law of God there's no way and this poor beggar says whether he's a sinner or not I don't know the only thing I know is I was blind and now I see they say to him again well tell us how he did it and he said I already told you you want to you want me to tell you again why do you want to become his followers how dare you they respond you're going to tell us you who were born in your sin as though they weren't but see he had to wear his sin quote unquote as a badge of dishonor remember what Jesus said to the disciples when they asked was he born because of, born blind because of his sin or because of his parents sin Jesus said neither but so that he would see the works of God so that the works of God would be seen. Maybe there's some place in your life and you say, why was I born this way? Or why have I had this struggle for so long? Or why is it, Lord God, that you would make me this way? And maybe the answer of the Lord is, so you would know your need. So you would call on me. Why, John Newton might have said, why, Lord God, did you bring me to this storm? So that I could bring you to myself. It's not just Jonah who came back to God by way of a storm. It's not just this man who was born blind. But the point is, he doesn't have to stay blind. Jesus will come to the, the Pharisees and tell them, I came to open the eyes of the blind and to take away the sight of the seeing. And they say, oh, in other words, you're saying that, uh, that we can't really see. And he says, if you admitted that you were blind, then you'd be able to see. But because you say you can see, you are really blind. It sounds a little confusing. But let me put it to you in this way. When Jesus comes to this man again, and the man recognizes that he can now see the one who healed him, Jesus reveals himself as the Messiah. Jesus asks the man, do you believe in the Messiah? And the man says, show him to me and I will believe. In other words, show me where he is and I'll go serve him. And Jesus says, you're looking at him and he is the one who is speaking to you now. But what a powerful thing. Jesus is saying, you're looking at him. A statement that could never have been made to that man before in his entire life until that day. But there's a time where all of a sudden you fall to your knees and realize, I see you are Lord and I'm ready to serve. And that is when life begins. New life, born again by the Spirit. That's when sight goes beyond sight. Not just the visual sight of our human eyes, but the spiritual sight of the truth of heaven. And Jesus is saying to the Pharisees, you don't see that, but you claim that you do. And therefore, you are blind guides. You don't know where you're going, and you're leading other people to it. 
the blind leading the blind. But if you would acknowledge that you're blind, then I would give you sight. What a powerful testimony of the man born blind. There's a tradition in the church that serves as the legacy of John chapter 9. I don't know that it's true, but I do know that it goes very far back into the uh, tradition of the church in terms of what became of this man. There is a tradition that says this man came to be known as Celadonius, probably a Latin version of his name, and may have traveled westward in the ancient Roman Empire and ultimately founded the church in Nîmes of what was then known as Gaul. That was a region, a, a, a division of the Roman Empire that is modern-day France. What is clear to me from this story is the man that Jesus healed, Jesus sent. And he sent him with what? Great learning? Not particularly, although surely the man began to attend to the scriptures the way John Newton did. Did he send him with great wealth? Unlikely. Jesus himself didn't have great wealth to give. And the man who was a beggar was probably at odds with his parents and the entire community. He was surely excommunicated from the synagogue. But he had one thing that he knew. He knew Jesus. And he had a story that proved that Jesus had forever changed him. Not just the healing of his eyes, but the healing of his soul. And when somebody has that, you don't want to just stay on one corner asking for what people will give you. You want to go to every corner giving them what you have. You have the story of life. You have the presence of Christ in you. So it doesn't surprise me at all that this poor beggar could have been a man who went all the way to Gaul in the ancient Roman Empire and established a church there and became a great leader. Consider what this man faced, mocked and persecuted for his claims. And yet he insisted on giving the credit for the miracle power of God through Jesus in his life. He could have lied. He could have gotten out of that situation. After all, he could already see. He could have just simply said, you know what? I look like that guy, but I'm not him. And I don't know a thing about Jesus. And I just really want to go about my Sabbath. And he could have stayed in good order with the community. But he wasn't willing to deny the fact of what God had done in his life. He was put out by authorities and by society, but he was embraced as a disciple by the Lord of life. And that is a very worthy trade-off. The one thing known is confessed three ways. And I want to talk about those three ways as we come to the latter portion of our message today. There's candor about what he doesn't know. I don't know whether the man is a sinner or not, right? He's not trying to lay claim to something more than he actually knows. So don't pretend you have all the answers. You, you are someone who has come to know Jesus Christ. He's done things in your life. He's worked miracles in you. You can share that. And in sharing it, you don't have to pretend that you have all the answers. You don't have to be able to explain always how he did it or why he did it, nor do you have to be able to answer everything out of the scriptures. And it's better that you not pretend that. It's better that I not pretend that. I don't come into this pulpit with the pretense that I understand everything in the Word. In fact, I try often to represent the reality that I'm a student of the Word and a student of the Lord, a child of the kingdom. I want to come to learn from God. 
It's not that I would say that you can't trust me in what I share with you, but one of the reasons I hope you trust me is because I'm willing to admit I don't have all the answers either, but I know the one who does, and that's what we want clarity about. We want clarity about what we do know, and it's about who we do know. So don't pretend you have all the answers, but don't deny that you know the one who is the answer. See, he's the answer to every question. And sometimes he may not give the answer you and I are looking for or that you and I understand, but if you know him, that's enough. Think of a parent, a great loving parent. You don't necessarily know and understand when you're a child everything that they do and why they do it, but if you know them, you can love them and trust them. When they discipline you, you can trust that the discipline is good. When they, when they keep something from you, you can trust that it's for your best interest that they do. When they give something to you, you can trust that you're ready for it, even if you're not sure that you feel ready. That's God. That's Jesus. You know him. You can know him. And he's the one answer that you need. The only answer. He will give you by his spirit the courage to proclaim what he has done for you. That's the power of our testimony. It's so powerful, much more powerful, really, than perfect, precise expressions of doctrine. The Pharisees were great at that, but they couldn't even recognize the Messiah when he was right in front of them. But here was a man who literally couldn't see the Messiah because he was blind, but he was willing to see. He was ready to be healed. He had the willingness and the faith to follow the one who had healed him. You have a testimony like that. You do, and if you think that you don't, Look back over your life. In fact, even if you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, but you're hearing this message today or reading it somewhere, I would wager that if you look carefully and thoughtfully and dare I say prayerfully over your life, you're going to discover that God has saved you in ways that you might not have even thought about. There are times when he protected your life. There are times when he preserved your reputation. There are times when he allowed something hard to come your way that you grew from or learned from. There are things that God has done for you. Find them. See them. Let him open your eyes if he needs to. Maybe you're blind to it, but he's not. So tell him, open my eyes, Lord, show me. And maybe it's just today. Maybe it's today that he wants to open your eyes and say, I am the one the one you're looking at now, the one you're hearing from, I am the one who saves you. And I give you the courage to declare it. Boldly declare Jesus by sharing what he's done for you. This is what Paul talks about in Romans 1.16 when he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Even though the gospel seems like an offense to Jewish people, said Paul, and, and foolishness to secular people or, or Gentiles, Nevertheless, I'm not ashamed of it because it's the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and then to the Gentiles. So, I want to think about some practical things before we conclude and take communion together today. What does it mean to have candor and vulnerability in sharing your testimony? The point and purpose of today's message is that you are sent, you are washed. You've been washed by the, the water of the word. You have been saved by the power of the Lord. So you are being sent with your story about the things that God has done in your life. Now, share that wherever you can, as broadly as you can, but do it with candor and vulnerability. Candor meaning honestness. I'm not trying to pull a fast one. I'm not trying to pull the wool over your eyes. And I'm not trying to say I'm better than you. 
In fact, candor and vulnerability comes from the place of need. What I know is I was blind, but now I see. Am I afraid to share about Christ or the scriptures because I might have to answer hard questions? Sometimes people feel that way. Well, if I start sharing about Jesus, people are going to come back at me and say, well, why, why did this, or how could he be born to a virgin, or how can God, and what am I going to do? But the scripture says if you study the word in such a way that you study to be approved by God to deliver the truth, you won't have to worry, you won't be ashamed. In other words, if that's a concern for you, read the Bible. The Bible gives you answers. The Bible gives you understanding. Not so that you have to have every answer, but the more you read the Word of God and pray and spend time with God, the more you diligently seek out the things of the Lord in the Word, in sermons and teachings, the more confident you'll be. But not only that, you're not alone. Jesus said, I won't leave you or forsake you. The Holy Spirit will teach you at that time what you should say. In other words, it may be that you think you don't have the answer, but remember, you don't need the answer. You just need to know the one who is the answer. Jesus will speak through you in that moment, but you have to open your mouth. You have to take that step of risk. You have to reach out to that other person. If you will do that and you'll do it in faith, I promise you the Holy Spirit will be there to teach you what to say and how to answer it. Do I fear sharing my testimony because it means revealing my failings and weaknesses? Maybe your testimony is how God delivered you out of addiction and you're not very proud to talk about that. Maybe you, you had a crisis in your life that came from your infidelity in marriage. Maybe it came because you committed a crime. Some people meet Jesus in prison. How about that testimony? You got to tell everybody you meet about how you did hard time. But you know what? No matter what your testimony is, there's something vulnerable about it. It involves you admitting, I once was blind. But don't worry about that. God's grace is sufficient for you. 2 Corinthians 12, 9. His strength is perfected. It's revealed in your weakness. Why was this man born blind? So that others could see. And he became a light. Do I bury my testimony because it includes past shame? There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Let me tell you something. If you don't want to share your testimony because you have shame about it, your testimony isn't done. Because if you have shame, there is still work of the Lord to be done in you. Because perfect love casts that fear out. And it does away with that shame. It doesn't mean that you look back and say, I wasn't wrong or it wasn't bad. It means that you say, I'm no longer under it. I've been delivered out of that. I've been washed clean from that. But what about how I live today? Maybe sometimes some of us are a little concerned about sharing Christ. I've admitted this. I don't want to have the Jesus fish on my car because of the way I drive. That probably means I need to pray a little more about the way I drive. Right? I don't want something that reveals me as a Christian if I want the liberty to not more live as a Christian. Right? There are people in their workplace who, listen now, get honest. You don't share about Jesus because you don't want to have the obligation of people expecting you to be honest and putting them first. You're not doing God any favors if you think, well, I, I don't want to bring God's name down. No, what he wants to do is bring your behavior up, right? If your conduct doesn't match your testimony, it's time for your conduct to change, not your testimony. And in fact, the word says we are to examine ourselves to see whether we are in the faith. 
We don't want to be blind guides trying to lead other people like the Pharisees. And there are too many Pharisees in church today. I'm not saying our church locally. I'm not pointing any fingers. But it is true among the body of Christ, there's too many people who are very proud about what they can see, but what they can't see is what they don't see. And so we need to examine ourselves. Jesus put it this way, before you get worried about the, pl the splinters in their eyes, take a look at the log in your own. How do we test ourselves, 2 Corinthians 13? Well, Paul is saying it this way. Jesus was crucified in weakness. Do you see that? Even Jesus lowered himself to the place of weakness so that you and I could be elevated to the place of power. Yet Jesus, who died on the cross and was buried in the grave, he rose again and he lives by God's power. Likewise, we are weak in him, Yet by God's power, we live with him in our dealing with you. In other words, Paul is saying, we're weak, but God's given us authority to share with you. That's someone who is saying, I'm not here because of my strength. I'm here because of my weakness and his strength. Amen. So therefore, in that light, examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. Well, how can you test yourselves? The test is this. Jesus gave it to his disciples in John 15. Are you abiding in me and I'm abiding in you? If you abide in me and I abide in you, you will bear much fruit. Say that, bear much fruit. Bear much fruit. But if you're not bearing fruit, you're not abiding in me and I'm not abiding in you. So the test is the fruit. Jesus said in Matthew 7, you'll know them by their fruits. False teachers, false prophets don't produce the fruit of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. They also don't accomplish the works of the Father, the miraculous works of the Father that have been prepared for us to do. Ephesians 2.10 says, God has prepared miracles, not just for you to receive, but for you to deliver, for you to do in his name. The works I do, said Jesus, you will do, and greater works. That's part of the test. Do you have the fruit of the Spirit emanating from your life? Are the works of the Father being done in your life? If they're not, you're not passing the test. But don't worry about not passing the test. I mean, worry about it, sure. But don't just worry about it. Come to the Lord. Abide in Christ. Deepen your root in Him and the life of the vine will flow into you. And the fruit of the Spirit will be manifest in you. But that's not going to happen if you're hiding your light under a bushel, under a basket. Clarity and certainty. We don't know everything, and we're candid and honest about that. But we do know Him. And there's a need, I believe a strong need right now, among the body of the brethren of Jesus Christ in our world today, especially in this nation, to stand up strong in saying, I know Jesus. I know Him personally. You see, if people are saying, well, how do you even know that Jesus lived? That's as ridiculous to me as saying, how do I know my father lived? I know he lived because I know him. Because I know him personally. Paul had this. Paul said, I've met him. Now, Paul didn't know him during Jesus' earthly life. So, Paul is for us, as he put it, one born out of time. He shows us how it is possible to have utter confidence in your personal relationship with Jesus Christ without ever having laid physical eyes on him. Because it isn't, that, it isn't about that. Thomas said he needed to see the resurrected Christ before he would believe. And he did. And Jesus came and said, look, here's the holes in my hand. Give me your hand here. You be Thomas for me for a minute. Thank you, Peter. Put your hand in my side and believe. Right? And Thomas said, my Lord and my God. 
But Jesus said, you believe because you see, but there's a greater blessing for those who haven't seen and still believe. And that's you and me. So yes, we need to show that to people. We need to show people that Jesus is alive. When people say Jesus isn't on earth today, I say, oh yes, he is. He's right here. I take their hand. And I hold it and I say, Jesus is holding your hand right now. You say, how dare you say that? I ask you, how dare you not? You are the body of Christ. So somebody better get this body out there to everybody else. Because that's what the body is here for. Yes, Jesus is physically present on earth today in you and in me. But we can't just do that alone. Then we're disembodied. We have to be one. That's why we come to communion and we want you to be part of the one. The one thing that brings life is the body of Jesus Christ shedding its blood for you, pouring out to the world the goodness of God. You might say, well, I don't know, I don't know how to say all these things. I don't, I don't have that, those nice words and I don't know how to explain all the scriptures and everything. Paul said, I didn't come to you with eloquence and human wisdom. Here is a man who had those things, well-educated, well-trained. But he said, I determined, I just would know nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness, with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on my wisdom, but on God's power. So don't worry. Just know Jesus and that he died for you. That's all you need to know. You don't, I'm not saying don't study the word. I'm not saying don't go deeper. What I am saying is don't wait to become an expert when what you really need to know is simply that Jesus died for you and for me. Am I intimidated at the thought that friends and family and colleagues might reject me? Guess what? They will. Maybe not all of them, but there will be people who reject you for talking about Jesus. But Jesus said very clearly, if you acknowledge me before others, I'll acknowledge you before my Father in heaven. But if you disown me in front of others, I'll disown you before my Father in heaven. You need to hear that as a reality because Jesus doesn't lie. So he's saying, you are going to face rejection. They rejected me, they'll reject you. But if you trust in me, I will come through for you. But if you don't trust for me, then I'm not going to come through for you because you don't belong to me. Whoever acknowledges me before others, said Jesus, I will acknowledge. Do I worry about offending people? You think, well, there's people of other faiths and I don't want to offend them. You don't need to be offensive. But you also don't need to give up the clarity about who Jesus is. Jesus was very bold about confronting other beliefs. When Jesus came to a Samaritan woman at the well in John chapter 4, she said, well, you know, you Jews believe that the temple should be in Jerusalem and that that's where our father Abraham uh, made the sacrifice and Jacob and so forth. But we think that it's up here, we Samaritans. And Jesus said, well, you're, you're wrong. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know because salvation comes from the Jews. He's not being ungracious, but he is being honest. He's being candid and forthright. But what he also is making clear to her is the fact that you're blind right now doesn't mean you can't see. In fact, if you're willing to acknowledge that, the light of the Lord will come to you. What God is really seeking is people who will worship him in spirit and in truth.
Jesus said to the, the Pharisees who were absolutely uh, adamant about their rightness and righteousness and they, and they said to Jesus, you're wrong. He says to them quite bluntly, you're in error because you don't know the scriptures or the power of God. It's important to be kind and gracious to people who have uh, different perspectives and points of view. There's nothing, I think, in our call to evangelize that says we should ever be dismissive or disrespectful about that. But you do not have to agree with someone's position in order to be respectful towards them. And it is, in fact, disrespectful to think that they are somehow um, so incapable of intellectual uh, process that they can't entertain an opposing view. I think if you have genuine respect and care for a person, it's amazing how willing they are to hear you speak about something that you have a deeply felt conviction about, especially when you're not arguing over doctrines. You're talking about who you know and what he's done. That's a kind of unassailable testimony. But maybe you have doubts about your own faith. Maybe you're thinking, do I really know Jesus? Do I have this kind of testimony? You know, it's not uncommon for each one of us at times to have doubts. Remember that the doorway into truth is Jesus himself. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. A very exclusive kind of statement, by the way. But it means that your ability to, to understand, to believe even, is not the ultimate strength that your faith is based upon. Your faith is based upon Him. Now, if you and I are constantly living in the world and then trying to live with the Lord and living in the world and living with the Lord, it will undermine our confidence. And that's why the enemy wants us to do that. And, and the enemy is also aware that God is not keen on that. What God ultimately says is like Jesus says to the church in Revelation, I'd rather that you were hot or cold, but since you're lukewarm, I'm going to spit you out. I'm not going to just entertain this sort of wishy-washy, on-the-fence kind of relationship, says the Lord. You're going to be with me or you're going to be against me. You decide. If we are double-minded, we'll be unstable in everything. That's what the book of James says. So there is a need for us to solidify our faith on the foundation of Jesus Christ. But that doesn't just mean, as I talked about last week, that we sort of screw ourselves up and work ourselves into this intellectual assertion, but rather that we rely upon the Lord. I like the man who said, I do believe, help me overcome my unbelief. A man who was asking Jesus to heal his son, and he wanted to believe, but he was struggling with doubts. That's okay. It is okay to feel the doubt, and it is okay to have that, that mental struggle so long as what you are founding your faith on is not your own understanding, but is Jesus himself. So come to Jesus. Ask the Spirit. Come to the Word. Seek in the Word so that you can stop doubting and believe, as, John, as Jesus said to Thomas, so that you can be freed from fear and just believe as Jesus says in Mark chapter 5. Finally, courage and conviction. I'm going to ask if those serving the communion would bring the table before us as I go over these final points. Don't hide your light. Don't hide your light. Let your light shine. 
Am I willing to share how Jesus has opened my eyes? Paul said, Jesus appeared to me also as one abnormally born. In other words, Paul made it clear that he was blind. And Paul was literally blinded when he saw Jesus. Blinded by the light. Paul was willing and ready to talk about that in order to talk about who Jesus was. But you know, can I ask the question? It's funny. It's like at a tennis match. When I call for the communion, the heads all turn this way. And it's, it's just like if you're watching the Wimbledon stadiums, it's like that. I have this experience of talking to a lot of people who are doing this. So I never know. I'm not sure if my word is getting quite to you in this moment. Now I'll stand here right at the table. I will make it easy for you to look. Are, are others sufficiently curious about my faith? In other words, does anybody even have any reason to ask why you believe what you believe? Or does it show up in your life at all? Peter said, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that you have in you. But you know what? That means people have to be seeing the hope. There has to be hope showing up in your life. Let the hope of the Lord show up in your life. Hope. It is an eternal thing. Faith, hope, and love. These three abide. And the greatest of these is love. So faith and hope are expressions of God's love. And they're eternal. Hope is more than what you think it is. If it's eternal. Hope is not just about, I am looking towards something that might not happen and I'm crossing my fingers that it does. In fact, that's not biblical hope at all. Biblical hope is this. I'm looking at something already done and I'm holding on to it. And people will say, what are you holding on to? And you can tell them, I'm holding on to Jesus. I was lost and he found me. Am I willing to be transparent? And to demonstrate that because people won't believe you were really lost, especially if you have a really redeemed life, until you start to share with them the ways you were lost. Until you start to share with them the depravity, the dishonesty, the depression, the discouragement, the confusion, the errors, the wounds that you inflicted on others. You have to share those things with people because they have that too. And when they see that you've been changed out of that, that's what will open their eyes. The Lord, through you sharing. Be transparent. Paul said to Timothy, I was shown mercy so that me, the worst of sinners, could be used to display the great Savior. So that I'd be an example so others would believe and also receive eternal life. Finally, am I willing to take a stand for Jesus even if it puts me at personal or professional risk? Don't fear those who can kill the body, said Jesus. Because they can't do anything other than that. You say, well, that's the worst that could ever happen. Behold, the worst that could ever happen has become the best that will ever be. Don't be afraid of death. Die to yourself and let the life of Jesus Christ give you courage beyond all courage. Conviction beyond all conviction. And if you say, I don't know that I can receive that, 
then receive this. Receive his body and his blood broken and shed for you. And in this, you will see 